everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Law and Candor. I'm Paige Hunt, and I am here with Bill Mariano. What's going on, Paige? I'm excited. We have a, we have a great episode today, and we actually uh, we, we talk about the four-letter word that is modern attachments. We did. This is top of mind for so many of my clients. Um, we've all encountered them, but the descriptors for these types of dynamic files are really controversial. In fact, we, we really had a great conversation around this at Illumination Summit earlier this year. So excited to expand upon it. Um, beyond the semantics, links and attachments really raise a bigger question about how managed collaboration data as it proliferates should be handled in the evolving workspace. We will talk to Lisa Lukashevsky of Council at Gunster and Michael Blank, Corporate Discovery Council at DISH, about how recent legal decisions are contributing to the debate and best practices on tackling these persistent challenges. As usual, before we dive into our conversation, we'll get started with sightings of radical brilliance. Today, we have an interesting and slightly unexpected story from AP. Car makers are failing the privacy test. Owners have little or no control over the data collected. Bill, what do you think on this one? I think I'm not surprised. Um, you know, so this article talks about a study by the Mozilla Foundation that found that most car makers uh, admit that they may be selling your personal information. Maybe. I just assume they were. Um, they're, they're mostly vague uh, it, it, on it. And they also say that and half of them say they would actually share with, the lo- with, with law enforcement without a court order, which is so nice of them. Look, this is not shocking at all. I think, um, you know, we, we are anything smart really means you're giving up privacy, let's face it. Whether it's a smart thermostat, whether it's a smart car, whatever it is, if it's collecting data on you, you're giving up privacy for convenience. So now you're dealing with the, like the proliferation of sensors and automobiles and, 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 and all, it, it, that's all gonna be shared. Uh, so, you know, I think, then, but they're also saying that drivers are given little control over the personal data their vehicles collect. And researchers for the foundation said security standards are also vague. A big concern automakers track uh, automakers track the record of uh, susceptibility to hacking. So, look again. Bottom line is you give up your privacy for convenience. We all do. Uh, we know every time we run a Google search, we're going to get an ad on our Instagram page. Uh, you know, thinking of going to Italy, uh, you know, and I, I think it, it, you think someone's reading your mind, you know, the, you just assume everything's being everything's being looked at and shared. Um, you know, if, if, and if that will uh, if that uh, if, if that's really what's driving you, then go buy an 86 Honda on Auto Trader. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Fair. And can you imagine driving around from state to state on a road trip? I mean, our privacy laws vary right among the different states. That's not going to change. Um, we haven't made it easier. So can you imagine having uh, as a car maker to respond to different things in different ways with all these states and vehicles moving everywhere? Just it, it seems like an impossible standard. I'll take convenience every day. Yeah, of course. And it, it's not, again, we, we talked about this this season. We talked about it last season. It's not like the federal government's jump, looking to jump in on a federal privacy law that's going to, you know, that's going to, you know, flatten it across all 50 states. So if I drive a, if I buy, if I buy a, a, a Honda in, in Tennessee, do I have different, if there are, are there different privacy laws as if I buy it in New York or in Washington versus Virginia or in Florida versus anywhere else in the world? So yeah, it's, it's interesting and more for us to worry about. Um, now we're we're actually we're we're going to turn our attention to our conversation with Lisa and Michael, and and they're going to talk to us about um, 
some more productive guidance for managing data. It's actually a really interesting discussion. And yeah, we do get into the four-letter word that is modern attachments because are they really attachments? The ever the ever evolving debate: Are they really attachments? It's a good, it's a really good pod. We think you'll enjoy it. Hello, Michael and Lisa. Welcome to Law and Candor. How are you both? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Same. I'm really happy to be here. Well, we're we're, we're glad to have you both here. So, we're just going to dig right into this because we are going to deal with the four letter words that are modern attachments. This is an issue uh, in our industry, and and please tell us about. Your roles, Michael. Let's start with you. Your roles and and how this is impacting you. And and then Lisa, you could you could kick off after that. Yeah. So um, I serve as corporate counsel for eDiscovery at Dish Network. Uh, we've got a great team. Uh, it's two attorneys and three technologists and a paralegal. Um, I assist with eDiscovery in you know sort of all facets of the EDRM from uh, you know preservation. Um, in information governance uh, to litigation, remediation, and even sometimes that little, you know, side part about visualization of the data. Um, so for us, you know, links are a big issue. I, I will be referring to them as links and targets. Uh, I'm borrowing that termination from Craig Ball. So for us, you know, links are a great way to collaborate. It allows for real-time, you know, folks to work together. It significantly decreases the amount of data that we're storing. Um, but it also, you know, has challenges in that it goes to sort of the the proliferation of data sources that we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, there's, you know, sort of a preservation issue there with, uh, you know, versioning and, and how you're preserving uh, documents that are subject to legal hold. Um, and it's, it's a big issue for litigation, right? It, it, requires some education to opposing parties and to the court about what these things are. Um, there's a risk when you rehydrate those links about creating um, false evidence um, or you know misleading evidence. Um, and it also you know goes to negotiation or, or proportionality considerations about data sources and where you're going to go in litigation. Like Michael, I also think that the term modern attachments is a misnomer. Um, they aren't attachments. Um, I, so like Michael, I prefer to call them something else and referring to them as links and targets works. Uh, my former colleagues at Redgrave LLP had written a series of articles suggesting that we call them pointers. And I think that that terminolo terminology really works well in this kind of situation too. Um, this is also an R-rated, this is also an R-rated podcast. If you had any other terminology <laughs> for it, you could feel free uh, to check further in there. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so my, I've heard them called many things. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my practice is centered on advising clients about information in the law, and, and that primarily involves two different areas. The first is information governance, which is how does uh, an organization manage information in its normal course of business. And like Michael just said, when it comes to conducting normal business, um, linked files and pointers make my clients' lives easier. They can help prevent the competing versions of documents um, that can get out there when people start exchanging native attachments, and it reduces storage space when multiple native copies um, would be shared and saved. Um, the second area of my practice is advising clients on e-discovery, and that is where linked files make things harder. Um, and Michael touched on some of what those challenges are, and we'll talk about them a little bit more during the podcast, but they fall into really two main areas in my mind. Um, the first is collection problems um, and, and 
The second is versioning problems. And we'll touch on both of those later on. Great. Michael, from a corporate perspective, why do you think the challenges with collaboration documents and data persist despite their exploding use? Yeah, I mean, to the surprise of no one, these technologies were not, uh, you know, created with e-discovery in mind or with litigation in mind. Um, you know, these technologies are created to make the businesses' lives easier. Um, and they certainly do that. But, uh, you know, because they weren't created with, uh, you know, litigation in mind and Microsoft calls things modern attachments and people then say, well, can you produce to me the modern attachment that goes with this email? Well, in an email system, uh, you know, the, the system automatically creates metadata that associates the target document with the email and, you know, uh, to which is attached here there is no metadata field that attaches these things right so um you essentially have documents that exist in the ether uh that that aren't you know actually attached to anything but are potentially relevant to uh you know the underlying email the other issue right is the tools that have been developed to solve this issue. So, you know, vendors and the email systems themselves have created systems that allow you to sort of rehydrate these links and targets. But many of them require collection, you know, sort of over collection of vast amounts of data, right? So you might not be able to target the specific, you know, target document in the shared folder. You might have to, you know, uh, get the entire shared folder. Maybe the person didn't actually share a single document. They shared a link to a shared folder to a system, right? In which case, you're not actually looking at producing a single document. You're looking at what the system is. Um, you also have email systems that have competing definitions of what a custodian is, right? And um, whether or not you're going uh, by that definition or by the definition of the tool that you're using. Um, the other thing is, you know, destruction of metadata it, during the process of collecting these, uh, these documents. Some tools use sort of a staging area, right, uh, where they pull documents from a shared folder in order to aid in the collection process. Um, but then you're destroying things like, you know, file path metadata, or it might affect things like last access or last modified metadata. That's great. Lisa, what are you hearing from your clients about the biggest issues with this type of data? So, so Michael just touched on two of the things we're talking about with our clients all the time, which is... Um, the collection issue, when you're collecting an email with a link in it, it's clear that there was a file pointed to, but that file is not part of the email. Um, so you have these tools that will rehydrate. And, um, you know, from an e-discovery standpoint, when you do that, you're creating a family relationship. You're creating a new thing that did not exist in the course of business. There was an email with a link in it. There was never an email with a document attached to it. And now you're creating that. Um, the large challenge, I think, for discovery is the purpose of discovery is to help the finder of fact discern the truth, whether that's a jury or a judge. But rehydrating linked files may mislead the finder of fact. Um, and that's because there's no guarantee that the link, the document that you've attached to the, the email, for example, that had a link in it is in fact what the reader saw. The recipient may have seen something different. That document may not exist where that link is pointing anymore. It certainly may have changed. And so there's a real concern with, with 
helping the fact finder discern the truth. And this may not make that easier. Um, and the biggest challenge we have right now then is educating opposing parties and the courts about that very real concern. Um, and this is, you know, a huge challenge in pretrial conferences and discussions um, for many, many counsel right now that we're talking to and, and the counsel that we're working with. Um, the other challenge that kind of goes without saying but shouldn't is that the platforms that offer native support for identifying, preserving, and collecting these target files are still under development by Microsoft and Google. So what you can do today um, and how you would do it may evolve and change by next week. And you may not be able to do the same thing or there may be a better or different way to do it. And it's constantly in flux. Lisa, stop taking such a practical view of this. I mean, <laughs> I mean, so let, let's let's not take a practical view of this. Let's talk about uh, the courts. Uh, you know, and and, and there, obviously, there's been some decisions that have that have impacted these targets, these links, these anything but modern attachments. And Lisa, let's start with you. How how has that affected the, the way you approach uh, this type of data? All right. So you could do really an entire podcast on the case law that has looked at this issue and. Um, is looking at this issue. Um, for, for our purposes today, I'll start by giving an overview of where things stand, and then Michael, I think, has some additional points to make um, about what that means for ESI protocols and agreements with opposing parties. But with respect to where things stand right now, um, case law on this issue over the last few years has seen links treated in different ways, depending on whether there are ESI agreements or an order and what those say. And so I would say that at the highest level, the default approach for how courts are treating these types of links and targets in the absence of agreements or orders um, is exemplified by the Nichols versus Noom case out of the Southern District of New York from 2021. Um, and Nichols was a case where the requesting party wanted to compel the producing party to use a third party tool to recollect Google Drive documents in order to create document families out of hyperlinks. Um, Nichols stands out because Judge Parker made a really clear statement that links are not attachments. And then she relied on what should be familiar e-discovery principles to any litigator to reach that conclusion, including Sedona principles, rule one and proportionality. And, the, and what they come down to is courts are basically saying, let's look at what is reasonable. Um, let's look at, you know, these aren't attachments. You don't have to go and collect all of them. Um, but let's identify a proportional or reasonable number of targets that the producing party can request. And let's talk about the burden um, associated with what these requests are. Let's come to something reasonable because it's clear that if you have an email that indicates that there's something relevant out there and it was attached or was pointed to, um, that it's likely that someone might need to see that that target document. And so that's where courts, in the absence of any other agreement, our landing is, there's probably something relevant there, but you don't have to go out and create all these relationships again because they aren't attachments, they aren't a traditional family. And so let's come to some conclusion that will work for everybody. Yeah, and then I think you have this other line of cases, right, that deals with ESI protocols and ESI agreements. So, um, you know, recently you had the INRI stub 
StubHub refund litigation from Northern District of California back in April. Um, that was a case where the parties had this ESI protocol that had a sort of odd uh, preamble about all of the different information that an email system contains. And it included a definition of quote unquote child files that included the word hyperlinks. So StubHub, which was using a Google platform, uh, produced documents from its Google platform, uh, but did not provide sort of a metadata link, right? This sort of artificial metadata link between the email and the, uh, you know, Google shared drive documents. Um, the court ended up saying, right, StubHub, you, you made an agreement um, and your agreement says you're going to do this. And the agreement, uh, you know, sort of, rules over any sort of default, uh, you know, position that the courts might take. So um, for StubHub, they ended up having to uh, rehydrate many of those links, or uh, the court would allow them to provide a 30B6 witness um, to testify about their collection activities. I think the important thing about StubHub and uh, some of the cases that Lisa mentioned is that there's a distinction that courts are drawing between the actual production of the relevant documents, right? Which if you are, you know, looking at reasonably accessible proportional data sources, you're going to be producing these documents anyway, versus the rehydration of the link and its target, which is sort of a separate issue of whether the actual document you're producing is reasonably usable. Um, you also had the recent case in June, the INRI Metapixel healthcare litigation. That was a case where the parties were actually trying to come to an agreement about the ESI protocol and couldn't agree on a term for, uh, for links. Um, and the court ended up having to step in to say, uh, well, if you, in the absence of this agreement, you, we are going to, you know, go back to this default position of, target documents are not actually attachments. Uh, we will not require the producing party to rehydrate this relationship, uh, but you know you can have a reasonable number of uh, sort of cherry-picked uh, documents where you might ask the producing party to rehydrate these links so long as it's not uh, sort of the ordinary practice. Um, one other case I wanted to mention, because it deals with not the hyperlinks themselves, but rather the tools that one might use uh, to rehydrate those uh, hyperlinks, is Whole Family Foundation v. Roberts, which is a Vermont case from April of 2023. Um, that was a case where the parties had an agreement to produce uh, specific metadata fields, in particular file path metadata. Um, and the party, the producing party in that case used a staging area to take documents from its shared folders, put them in a single location, and then produce them uh, to the requesting party, which inevitably, right, destroyed that file path metadata that they had agreed to produce. So it's, uh, while it wasn't a case about hyperlinks, it sort of goes to making sure that the tools that you use, if you are going to rehydrate those hyperlinks, um, conform to the outlines of the ESI protocol that you agree to. Okay, with all of the recent decisions in mind, what are some of the best practices for governing collaboration data and handling it more downstream? Lisa, let's start with you. 
Okay. So, you know, I think that everyone is still trying to define those best practices. And I think one place that we can start is I do not think the answer would be returning to having everybody send attachments instead of links or pointers or to saving attachments whenever a link is sent. Um, and that's because it eliminates all of the business efficiencies that we've talked about and the efficiencies for collaboration and storage that make these linked files useful. So where does that leave us then? I think some of the answers may be found in applying naming conventions and using notes fields and documents properties where you can to be clearer about when a document was changed or edited. Um, the more breadcrumbs we can create somehow with respect to the documents that these tools will be rehydrating um, to these emails, the better able the fact finder might be to determine the truth later. If I had a better idea of when the document that you rehydrated was actually viewed versus when the email was sent, I would know if it's what the reader, the recipient had actually seen. Um, and then secondly, I think it's definitely critical to make sure that ESI protocols and agreements with opposing counsels seek to work from the positions taken by the courts, which have said, you know, upon review of a production, a requesting part or party can request certain specific hyperlinked documents and not all of them. And let's work on finding something reasonable, but let's also be really clear about what is a family and what can be requested and what's proportional. Um, from the outset. So a court isn't left to try to decide this um, and decide it in large part from protocols that weren't really addressing or anticipating these issues when they were created. Yeah, I think it also goes to knowing your business, right? Um, knowing how the people in your business communicate. Uh, my outside counsel loves to talk about things like data mapping. Uh, I'll be honest that data mapping Full data mapping for an organization like mine or many, you know, sort of large organizations is not really, you know, 100% feasible. By the time you create it, it's outdated. Um, you could create a data map forever. Um, but knowing your business, talking to the key players in your litigation, um, knowing how they communicate, um, and not just using sort of standard, you know, sort of forms for that, but actually talking to people, um, and having open and honest communications, even where they might, you know, uh, not be communicating in accordance with sort of uh, an overarching policy. So you've both taken a really practical approach to this. I'm, I'm just, you know, we'd like to leave our listeners with some best practices um, on how to prepare. And I think one of the things here is, and I think, Lisa, you actually mentioned this specifically, which is, the, you know, the, we're going to see a lot of changes in in collaboration data and a lot of changes in how Microsoft and Google and, and companies like that uh, uh, roll them out and connect them. And again, the, the, Michael, you've mentioned several times, they don't necessarily have litigation in mind when they, when they come right. up with this stuff. So, Michael, let's start with you. How do you, how do you see some of the stuff changing? And then it, how do we take a practical approach to preparing for it? So we, like best practices we can give our listeners. Yeah, I mean, so sources of data are going to continue to explode, right? We've already seen it with, you know, with the pandemic, but it I think we're just going to see the continued sort of growth of all of these data sources. So knowing how your business is communicating with one another, knowing how subsections of your business are communicating with one another is really important and having those open and honest conversations about what communication tools people's people are using um and how that information is being stored. I think you'll see the tools that people use, right, to co 
to collect their data or to rehydrate links and targets will continue to change. I just mentioned, right, Microsoft's tool, um, but again, only works in Microsoft's environment. Google's is, you know, somewhat similar. Um, and so you'll see, you know, having conversations with your vendors about how their tool works, making sure that, you know, uh, conforms to any agreements you might have, um, and just making sure that the tools that you're using aren't moving backwards, right? Businesses are not going to move backwards in terms of the benefits that these collaboration tools uh, provide to them just because of e-discovery risk. Um, the other thing, and this is, you know, my, my speculation on what might happen, but the versioning issue to me seems like it might require judicial intervention at some point, right? There's a really great risk that by rehydrating you know, links and their targets that you're creating this false data, right? You're creating a false relationship that did not exist um, and presenting false evidence essentially to the court. And so um, while it's, you know, required by many courts, I, I do think there's, there's risk there. There's also this sort of side issue of spoliation or sort of its specter, right? Which is, by continuing to work on collaborative documents, even after they're placed on hold, you're essentially changing the data um, that is that is relevant to litigation. You know, I think that might have to be decided at some point. You know, I, I think. <laughs> mandating that you preserve every edit to a collaborative document probably turns Zubulake on its head. Right. Um, and they're has to be some application of proportionality principles to it. But I do think that, um, you know, that is something that a court might have to address at some point. And Michael, I think I think you're right. You know, Zubilek said not every scrap of paper needs to be preserved. You don't have to preserve every instance of every piece of information. And um, if we started to have to do that with every edit or every, uh, you know, essentially equivalent of a version, um, that would be exactly what happened. And so I think where that leaves us then as far as takeaways is how do we prepare? What what can people do today as all of these changes that Michael just talked about um, keep happening? And I think the most critical thing that any organization can, can do is to understand um, where it's data is and how its collaboration tools work. Um, you can't have conversations with your witnesses or opposing parties or the court if you don't understand those two things. And, you know, I wish this was a one-time task, but it isn't. It's an ongoing education. Um, you know, as, as Michael said, what you do, um, where your data is, is, is outdated if you've created a data map as soon as you have one. And so you need to continue to understand that. And similarly, understanding what your technology and tools can or can't do, both the tools that you're using to communicate and create these links, but also your collection and processing and discovery tools. Um, you need to keep that understanding updated as the changes keep occurring. Um, second thing you can do is be prepared to negotiate. Um, make very sure that the language in your ESI protocols and other case management documents are clear as to what your tools allow you to do and what they do not allow you to do. And I think that the third thing that everyone has to be ready to do is be prepared to educate, be prepared to educate opposing parties, be prepared to educate the court. And as Michael touched on, prepared to educate your own witnesses about the limitations um, that come about 
as we use these these capabilities that make business um, so much more efficient. Well, Michael, Lisa, it's been great having you both with us. Um, thanks for offering your take and your guidance here. And we'll just continue to watch as this unfolds. Yeah, stop being so practical. That would be my advice to both of you. I, you're just you're way too solutions oriented. I, I, I don't know if you know it's such a complicated subject has room for you two people. Thanks so we much try. for joining us. It was, it was great. This was great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us on Long Candor. If you want more news, insights, etc., follow Lighthouse on LinkedIn.